Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, Jesus loves us. There's no question about it. The bigger question this morning, and really the theme of this morning is, do we truly love him? the way he loves us. That really is the million-dollar question that we're going to consider this morning. So far in this series, Ghost Stories, we have looked at no less than five times that Jesus appears following his resurrection. They're all recorded in the four New Testament Gospels. We have the recording of Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene uh, while she is still at the tomb, And then to the other women that are on their way back to the other disciples to inform them that Jesus is alive. And while they're on their way there, the Bible says Jesus appears also to these other women as they're going back to tell and inform the disciples. Then the Bible tells us that Jesus appears to two men as they're leaving Jerusalem on their way, seven-mile journey to their hometown back to Emmaus. The Bible says while they're walking along, Jesus comes and walks with them. And he appears to them and shows himself alive to them. While they're on their way back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, the disciples are together, they're boarded up in a room, they're they're sharing a meal together, and while they're sharing the meal, the Bible says Jesus appears right in their midst and in their presence. It's a remarkable thing. And the Bible then tells us that one of the disciples, Thomas, was not there for that particular appearance. He told the other disciples, unless I see him myself, I don't trust what you're telling me. And so Jesus affords him this opportunity, and the Bible tells us that a week later, the disciples are together again, Thomas, who had doubted, was there, and Jesus comes and says, now now here I am, touch me and see that I'm alive, and then choose for yourself, are you going to believe or are you going to disbelieve? Now we talked about this last weekend and if you weren't with us, I encourage you to go to the podcast. It is, a, it is a talk worth listening to from our podcast. This morning, I want to pick up this narrative in the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples. But before we do that, let me tell you a little history about the disciples, because this is remarkable. Historically, we know that every one of the original disciples, except Judas died a martyr's death. So the other 11 original disciples all died as martyrs for their faith, which which just simply means they believed so deeply. They were so convinced that Jesus was alive that they were willing, because of that conviction, to give their life for it. All of them except one. John, who writes the gospel, then later on writes three letters and finally writes the book of Revelation actually is the one apostle, original apostle, who doesn't die as a martyr. He dies of old age. But he doesn't do it like most people do it. He was exiled from civilization, banished from civilization, to a remote island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. And there, late into the first century, John begins, through painstaking effort, to continue to write on parchment about the narrative of who Jesus is, and what Jesus had done. It was a remarkable thing because God preserved those manuscripts for us today, and we have them in our accounts of the New Testament, the Christian Bible. John on the island of Patmos was still late in life 
he was still struck with the reality that Jesus was alive. In fact, it was so profound for him that here's what he writes in one of his final letters, and we're skipping the first couple of scriptures. We're going to go to 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. This is John writing now, the youngest of Jesus' disciples. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and we have seen. We saw him with our own two eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that you may fully share our joy. Here's what John's saying. John is saying Jesus was not just a phantom. This was not just a ghost story. We actually, with our own two eyes, got to see the resurrected Christ. With our own two hands, we got to handle him. And so here's what John is saying. The experiences that we had with the resurrected Christ were very much like the experiences we had before he died. They were very similar. We experienced him in much the same way. And he writes often about that experience. And one of these encounters that he tells about is found in the gospel that bears his name, John. He writes the encounter. It takes up an entire chapter of the New Testament Bible. And it's the story of the third appearance to Jesus to his disciples. Let's begin reading it. John chapter 1, or chapter 21, beginning at verse number 1. Afterward, after Jesus had already appeared multiple times, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or also known as the Doubter, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. I want you to notice where the disciples were. And I want you to notice what the disciples were doing. They had gone back together to a familiar place. They had gone back to the Sea of Galilee, to a place that they were very comfortable with. In fact, according to what is suggested by the narrative, they had decided to return to their old life and their old profession of fishing by trade. They were on the Sea of Galilee doing what they were most familiar with, and I think at this point in the narrative, Peter and the other six disciples that were with him, no doubt, had lost any hope to there being a future outside of their profession of fishing. I think it's interesting that the narrative tells us that they fished at night 
and they caught nothing. That was very customary. In Palestine, it was very customary uh, for Galilean fishermen not to fish during the day, but rather to fish at night when the catch would be much better. Now, I grew up right next to a railroad track, and when I say right next to railroad tracks, I mean right next to them. When, when the train went through at night, my bed rumbled. I was only about 20 yards. I was really a stone's throw away, literally as a kid. I used to pick up stones in my yard and throw them at the train as it went by. That's just what kids do. If that train had come off the track, it no doubt would have landed in our front yard. That's how close we were to it. But down those tracks, away from our home, there was a pond that we used to find. We went and we fished there often. My friends and me would go, and as kids, we would go fishing, and we learned something about fishing in that pond. It was much better and much more productive to not fish in the heat of the day, but rather to fish late at night in the cool of the night. And so as kids, we would go down and we would light a campfire right by the pond, and by flashlight, we would fish all night long and sometimes cook the fish right when we caught it. The disciples knew this as well. They knew there was something good about fishing at night, but what was striking is the Bible says they caught nothing. Very unusual. So the Bible picks up the narrative in verse number four. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did this, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Question. How did John identify that it was Jesus? How was he able to know for certain that it was Jesus standing on the shore? Uh, Was it his mannerisms that gave him away? Was it his dress that gave him away? Was it his voice tone? No, I suspect what gave Jesus away was the instruction. Because this was not the first time in the disciples' lives that they as Galilean fishermen had been out all night long and had come up empty. In fact, this narrative, when you read it, is eerily similar to another narrative found much earlier at the beginning of Peter's following Jesus that comes and is found in Luke chapter 5. And here's what it says. Luke chapter 5. When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Lock your attention on those thoughts. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of their boats so full that they began to sink. I don't think that miracle was really designed for anyone else but Peter. Because according to the story here, the very next thing Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, 
you from this day forward are going to be a fisher of men. You've been catching fish on the Sea of Galilee all of your life. But from this day forward, you're moving into a new trade, a new profession. I want you to come and I want you to follow me. And that's exactly what Peter does. It's a miracle that captures his attention. Back to the narrative in John's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning at the latter part of verse number 7. As soon as Simon Peter heard John say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When I read this, I remember thinking to myself, you know, sometimes we can get so excited about something in life, so enthusiastic, that we're not even thinking clearly. Peter does something that is so odd here, doesn't he? He already taken off his shirt while he's out there fishing. He wanted to catch some of the beautiful rays on the Sea of Galilee. And instead of swimming to shore... In just his bottom garments, the Bible says, he puts on his shirt and then jumps into the water. Why? Now, I know you're waiting for some really profound, insightful implication to this, but I got nothing. Sorry, I got nothing. I I don't understand it other than that Peter was so overwhelmed that he wasn't thinking clearly. Puts on his shirt, jumps in, swims to the shore. And this is what happens when they get there, verse number 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, why are you? Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want to make several applications and observations before we dive deeper into really the main thing I want to zero in on this morning. The first thing I want you to notice from the story here is that Jesus invites us into a partnership with him, but he doesn't require it. Did you notice when we read the narrative, the fire was already burning and fish were already on it before they ever got to shore? Here's the point. Jesus did not need their fish to do a miracle. Jesus simply said, listen, I'm going to invite you to a partnership with me. I'm going to invite you to have part of what is about to take place. So bring some of the fish you have, but notice it. I don't need it. I've got everything already taken care of. Everything is prepared. In our lives, Jesus extends us this wonderful invitation that we can come and do a relationship with him. We can enjoy working together with God, but God does not need us. We need him. God can do it without us. And yet he still permits us to be part of it. I don't want you to also miss the second observation, that Jesus cares about the smallest details of our life. 
The miracle for me in this story is not the large quantity of fish. The miracle in this story to me is that the nets didn't tear. In fact, the Bible makes, makes it clear and really points this out, that these were not just normal Galilean fish. The Bible says they were large fish, 153 of them. These, these weren't just the typical catch. Every single one of them were actually award-winning fish. In the spring of 1990, I moved our family about four blocks from Lake Erie. For the next five years while we lived there, I did my share of fishing uh, on Lake Erie, both from the shoreline and out in boats. I loved it. And while I was there, I learned about a program that is, that is actually put forth by the State Department of Wildlife called Fish Ohio. Anybody here ever hear of the Fish Ohio program? Well, the design of the Fish Ohio program is simple. You can look it up on the website, but it's simple. It's to recognize those who catch fish that are beyond the ordinary limits and the ordinary size of fish that you'll find in Ohio. Well, I, while I was there near Lake Erie, I got two Fish Ohio that I was able to send in to the State Department of Wildlife and receive these awards back. Oh, I cherish them today because they were big catches, Okay. So, so the first fish Ohio I got on Lake Erie was a 14-inch yellow perch. It was this big. It was huge. But it was big, large enough to get awarded by the State Department of Wildlife. The second one I caught was a walleye. And this fish Ohio was a 29-inch walleye, 6 pounds. It was this big, I'm telling you. It was the largest catch But both of those were recognized as Fish Ohio. This is what they're catching. They're catching Galilean Ohio fish, or fish Galilee. They're they're catching fish that are large enough that they're being recognized as significant, and yet the net doesn't break. I think it's because Jesus says, listen, I care about the small things. And I also want you to observe that in the narrative, Everything really begins with the relationship. Jesus actually, don't miss this, Jesus actually takes time to enjoy a breakfast with them. He didn't have to. He didn't have to take time to sit with them and enjoy a meal, but he does it. And then something remarkable happens over breakfast. And this is where we're going to drill down. All of a sudden, everybody who's out on the lake disappears. Everybody standing on the shoreline disappears. All the other disciples sitting around the fire disappear. At this point, Jesus locks his attention on one disciple, Peter. Now, now remember, this is not the first time Jesus had appeared to Peter. So the purpose of the exchange that is about to happen has nothing to do with Jesus proving that he's alive. There is something much deeper, something much more profound in what is about to take place. And it leads me to two principles that I want you to walk away with from this service today. The first principle is this. Jesus wants to know 
that we love him more than everything else. Jesus wants to know that I love him more than everything else. Verse 15 of John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Notice in the narrative that Jesus doesn't call Peter by the name he had given him. He calls him Simon, son of John, which was his birth name. When I am called by my birth name, I know I'm in trouble, okay? My wife always calls me Gil, but every so often when she says, Gilbert, mm, all bets are off, okay? So, I mean, it gets my attention. I know I better listen because I have just done something, known or unknown, that needs to be reconciled, right? Jesus is trying to get Peter's attention. He's saying to him, listen, Simon, son of John, this is serious business that we're about to get into. And he only has one question for Peter, just one. It's the million-dollar question. And he simply asked Peter, do you love me? Now, just a few days earlier, Peter couldn't even admit that he knew Jesus, much less that he loved him. It would have been far easier for Jesus to look at Peter and say, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? That would have been much easier for Peter. But Jesus knew something about human nature that every one of us have to learn at some point. And it's this. It is possible to feel remorse. It's possible to feel sorry about something and not change. Did you know that? How many of you, like me, have prayed to God before and said, God, I am so sorry, I'll never do it again, only to do it again? Anybody else here ever do that? I'm guilty. I'm guilty of saying those things to God. And Jesus knew that it's not about sorrow. It's not about feeling sorry. There's something much more profound. He wanted to know that he loved him. And in the original Greek, there's incredible nuance in this word love that is missed in the English translation. I don't want you to miss it today. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he uses a word in the original Greek that is the word agape, which is a sacrificial, all-in sort of love. That It's the highest form of love. It's God's kind of love. It's the kind of love that compelled Jesus to come to this earth. Peter hears Jesus say that. Do you agape me? And Peter, knowing his failure... That he had said, everyone else may fail you, but I'll never fail you. Everyone else may scatter, I'll never scatter. Nobody else will go to a cross with you, but I will. Peter now is a broken man. He's humbled. He recognizes that he has no right to say back to Jesus, yes, Jesus, you know that I'll give you everything. I'll sell it all. 
And so he uses a different word in the Greek, the word phileo, which actually is a very earthy kind of love. It means a deep compassion and a genuine caring. I care deeply for you. So here's Jesus saying, do you love me sacrificially, giving it all? He's saying, I love you deeply, Lord. You know I care deeply about you. And the first two times Jesus uses the word agape, Peter replies with the word phileo. The final time Jesus says, do you love me phileo? Do you care deeply about me? I think Jesus was recognizing that Peter was a changed man. That Peter began finally to become fully aware of his deficiencies. That he could not live for Jesus without his help. He could not do it any longer on his home. And so three times he asked him. Three times Peter denied Jesus at his crucifixion. Three times Jesus asked him the question, do you love me? It was one of the most restorative moments that we read about in all of the Gospels. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Here's where it gets really interesting. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Watch this. More than these. He ups the game. He ups the ante considerably. And the question is, what was Jesus referring to? What was Jesus referring to when he said, Peter, do you love me more than all these? I think Peter hears what he was saying. I think Jesus was saying, do you love me, Peter, more than your career? More than your profession? Peter, do you love me more than your boats and all your toys? All your possessions? He was saying, Peter, do you love me more than your two closest childhood friends, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who you grew up with? Do you love me more than your closest friendships? Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than flesh and blood? More than your biological brother, Andrew? Take all of these things, and do you love me more than all of them? Which leads me to one of two reflective questions I want to give you this morning. What is the thing in your life that you would have to admit that you struggle to love God more than? What is that one thing in your life? Because Jesus is driving here at something that I don't want any of us to miss. He was driving at Peter's heart, the deepest part of his affections. He's saying, everything that competes with me, I want to know you love me more than those things that compete with me. What is that thing in our lives that we would have to admit we struggle to love Jesus more than? Perhaps it's something that you feel like you can't live without. Maybe this morning it's your family. Maybe this morning it's your health. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your successes. Maybe it's the accomplishments. Maybe it's your reputation. What is that thing in your life that competes with Jesus for being your first love? Because here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, if you love me, if you truly love me, you're going to say it. You're going to tell me. And watch this. If we really love God, we'll actually say it. We'll actually admit it. You know, when I got married, I told my wife, Kelly, I 
I love you. I adore you. I want to spend my life with you. Can you imagine all these years later if I had never told her again I loved her? How that would have gone over? Can you imagine Kelly coming to me one day and saying, you know what? You never tell me you love me. And I'd reply and say, well, I told you on our wedding day I love you. I'll let you know if anything changes. It wouldn't have gone so well. If we really love God, we are going to say it. But we're also going to show it. We're going to show it often. We're going to show it time and time again. The choices of our life will reveal that we love God more than all else. When God asks us to do it, we will. And so in the narrative, the first principle I want you to see is this. Jesus wants to know that we love him more than everything else. And here's the second and final one I'm going to give you this morning. Jesus wants to know that we will follow him despite everyone else. Jesus wants to know that we will follow him despite everyone else. Let's pick up the story. John 21, beginning at verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you, Peter, were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned, and he saw the disciple that, whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper, and who said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Jesus is saying, Peter, all of your life up until this moment, you have lived your life like Frank Sinatra. You did it your way. You chose the roadmap for your life and for your journey, and nobody dare tell you which direction to go. But if you really love me, it's all got to change. It's all got to change. Life has to end on your terms. And so what he's saying to Peter is, from this day forward, you no longer call the shots. I've got to call the shots. I've got to direct you which way to go. I've got to show you how to live out your life. Peter, from this day forward, you've got to follow me, no questions asked. And let me say this morning, this is one of the most critical things that we read about in all of the Scripture. Because it begs the question, what does it really mean to be a Christ follower? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We use the terminology. You've heard me use the terminology. But what does it mean? Well, it's the only term that Jesus ever uses in the Gospels when he invites people to come into relationship with him. He doesn't say, admire me. He doesn't say, worship me. He says, follow me. And so it's very critical that we understand what Jesus is getting at here. Let me give you a few of the implications 
for what it means to follow Jesus. First is this. Following settles once and for all the relationship issue. It means that following Jesus is staying close to Jesus. It means wherever he is, you are. Think about it. Have you ever tried following somebody and allow there to be too much distance between you and them? See how that works out. Try it sometime. It doesn't go well. To follow, there has to be closeness. It settles the relationship issue. Secondly, following settles the leadership issue. It means from that moment forward, the direction of your life is not determined by you. It is determined by him. I think every Christ follower should be able to say this with confidence. When they're asked, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you going where you are going? Every Christ follower should be able to confidently say, I'm doing it, I'm going here because I feel Jesus is leading me there. I think this is critical. I have young people come to me from time to time to want to talk to me about getting married. And when I talk to them about the person that they want to marry, I find out they have no faith in Christ. They have no relationship with Jesus. And when I say to them, how have you come to this conclusion? They cannot give me a solid answer. And it really makes suspect whether Jesus is really leading them. Because if Jesus were leading them, they would want to follow and they would want to, to, to do what Jesus asked them to do and what the Scripture clearly tells us that we should and shouldn't do. It settles once and for all the leadership issue. We no longer are out in front. We are behind following. And finally, it settles the trust issue. It settles once and for all the trust issue. Following Jesus means we completely and wholeheartedly trust that he knows what's best for us. So it brings me to another final reflection question, and it's this. What is the one excuse that you find yourself using for not following Jesus wholeheartedly? For Peter, it was the other guy. For Peter, it was something else. For Peter, he had a good reason to go, listen, until you required of him... I don't think you should require it of me. It's not how it works. What Jesus asks of me, he may not ask of you. And what Jesus asks of you, he may not ask of me. Following Jesus means we are in this personal relationship. We have a leader out in front of us, and we are fully trusting the direction of our life to his leadership. I have learned that there are only two ways to live the Christian life. That's it, just two. You can live the Christian life your way through sheer willpower, through your own strength, and through your own wisdom. That's a a choice that you have. To make a mental ascent to this idea that you are a follower of Christ, but really to do it your way. I can tell you, you will live your Christian life as a failure. You will never experience the abundant life that God wants you to have. The second way to live out your life as a follower of Christ is God's way through Jesus' power, and through Jesus' strength. Not through what you're able to do, but through what God can do through you. That's the only way. And when you do that, I can promise you, you will have success 
and you will experience everything that God has in store for you. When you live your life God's way, loving him more than everything else and following him despite everyone else, you'll experience eternal life, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So what about you? What about you? Who are you following? Maybe a better question is, what are you following? Are you following Forbes? Are you following the stock market? Are you following horoscopes or psychics? Are you following your own emotions? What are you following? And where is it leading you? Has it led you to a place of fulfillment? Because I want to say this morning that the most important decision and the most important answer that you'll ever give to Jesus is whether or not you love him and whether or not you'll follow him. Those are the million-dollar questions. It is discipleship in its purest form. Let's pray together. Bow your heads, please. This morning, I want to invite you, if you're in our auditorium, and it is time for you this morning cross the line of faith. Perhaps you've been putting this decision off. Maybe you've been attending Grace Crossing Church for a season of time. Maybe it's your first morning here. Maybe you're a member of the church. But, but you recognize in your own heart, in your own life, you have not truly proven by your life that you love him and that you're fully following him. This morning, I want to pray for everybody in our auditorium who's at that place in their hearts today. And you would say, as you pray, and as you close this service today, remember me. Remember me in prayer. I want to give my life and my heart fully, completely, over to Jesus. I love him more than all else, and I want to follow him this day. This is a bold decision. This is going to take courage for you. Some of you have been attending here a while and you're so embarrassed to think, man, I'd lift my hand. The pastor, what's he going to think? I'll tell you what I'm going to think. I'm going to respect you to a whole new level that you have had the guts this morning to make a decision to cross the line of faith and let your life begin to follow him fully. If that's you this morning, would you lift up your hand right now? Lift it up high. Let me see it this morning. If that's you in this auditorium, and say, I want to say this morning, I love him, and I want to follow him with all of my heart and all of my life. I want to move in God's direction. I want to trust him. Yeah, there are, there are several that have lifted their hands. Are there others? Thank you so much. Anyone else? This morning before we pray, yes. Thank you so much. Father, you're here this morning. You're here in this place to bring life to us, to bring hope to us to give us a future and purpose. This is one of the most critical messages we could ever do because, God, it's so foundational to what it means to be a Christian. We have made being a Christian something far beyond what this is. It's so below, Lord, what you've asked of us. And so in this moment, Lord, of prayer, I lift up every single person that's here. I pray for every heart and every life, especially those who've lifted their hands and have acknowledged that they 
want to cross the line of faith this morning. They're ready. They're prepared. Life is ending today on their terms. It's beginning on your terms. So God, in this new lease on life, help them to prove their love for you by being obedient to you. At the end of the day, God, you don't really want our works. You want our love because when you have our heart, you get everything else with it. And so you want our hearts. And you care about that so much more than everything else. So Father, would you touch every single person this morning. Bless them. Minister to them. And give them hope for their future, I pray. We love you, Father. We love you. And we thank you for touching every heart and every life this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Christ's name. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.